Hi, welcome to the uh, authorship uh, roundtable. Uh, this, this, is, this is Caroline. I am Andras. We co-organized this. Um, the idea was uh, that <coughs> since Western bibliography and, and its kind of paradigmatic form started as the exploration, you might say, of um, the reconstruction of authorial urfus, um and, and paradigmatically uh, the works of Shakespeare. So we thought that the panel exploring how authorship might be useful as a term with which to think um, across disciplines, across genres, forms, and period fields would be an interesting um, enterprise. Um, so we, and this is what we're asking for in our um, call for papers, not just literary scholars, but um, librarians, um, <coughs> historians of philosophy, art, etc. Um, and we got like um, fantastic uh, submissions, so you're gonna hear those, and Caroline is going to do a little bit of introduction. And the interest of getting through our lovely line table, we saw we the editions and uh, print out the bios, so there are some at the back as well if you could get one, I have a few more up here. However, uh, I was quite proud of my efficiency, but I still managed to forget somebody. So, uh, you, uh, I'll say everybody's name, but when I get to the person I've forgotten, I will give a more, uh, a longer intro, and then we can um, switch over to, to doing the papers. So everybody's arranged alphabetically. Uh, we have Katie Childs. We have um, Molly Desjardins, who is the person who's sitting and posting it on my phone. <laughs> she is a Japanese studies librarian at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries. Before coming to Penn Libraries, she completed a PhD in Japanese book history and an MSI in library and information science at the University of Michigan and was a Reichauer postdoctoral fellow at Harvard. Her research interests include authorship in the long 19th century, publishing, collected editions, and 21st century urban exploration publications from Japan. She also has a background in computer science and recently taught a week-long workshop in memory on Japanese mining. Next, we have Sonia Driver, Zach Lesser, Michelle Levy, Candace Sharon, and Chad Wallman. And then um, after we go through our lineup, uh, we will have a brief comment from Matt Cohen, who will also moderate the Q&A. Uh, since Matt is the moderator, I'll also read his aloud and sort of, you know, gesture of, of I don't know, veneration. Um, Matt is an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a fellow of the Center for Digital Research in the Humanities there. He's a contributing editor at the Walt Whitman Archive, and he is currently directing the NEH-funded initiative to digitize Whitman's marginal annotations. His books include The Networked Wilderness, Communicating in Early New England, a book I cite all the time, and I mean, I really do. <laughs> uh, and most recently, Whitman's Drift, Imagining Literary Distribution, uh, recently put out by Iowa Press. So with that, we will begin our roundtable. Thank you. Thank you so much to our organizers. And is that okay, that volume? Okay, fantastic. Um, 
Good afternoon. I'll just jump right in. Alternative Black Authorship. My book project, which is tentatively and tentatively entitled Race Collaboration in Antebellum America, the idea of authorship in early African American and in Native American literatures, studies how African Americans and Native Americans produced English language texts through collaboration with persons of many different races. It investigates the way that these writers collaborated, including dictating, but also editing, transcribing, and printing, to highlight the crucial role that collaboration played in early African American and Native American literatures. In discerning new understandings of authorship, this project deepens our appreciation of the role of these writers in antebellum America. Our conveners today have asked us to consider, quote, how do different cultures, geographies, and time periods conceptualize or even ignore the author? Thus, for our round table today, our long table today, I'd like to outline just two ways that early African American writers practice what I find to be really surprising modes of authorship that unsettle conceptions of the romantic idea of the author, the unraced or white lone genius who single-handedly creates original great art. These texts also explore how conceptions of antebellum American authorship are connected to the institution of slavery as a hinge upon the questions of whether and or how a possessive individual or a liberal subject could own both one's oneself as property as opposed to those who cannot own themselves as property and one's words, thoughts, and labor as property as well. And I would love feedback and um, suggestions on this, on this line of analysis. So first, early black writers such as Jeffrey Brace, Solomon Northrup, William Grimes, and Frederick Douglass all use the term author in a way that foregrounds rather than conceals authorship's conceptual ties to slavery in Antebellum <coughs> America. Each of them performs the role and achieves the status of quote-unquote author, and each also queries how antebellum American authorship is entangled within the episteme of racial slavery. Here, the writers perform what Gayatri Spivak has called a per persistent critique of that which one cannot not want. To illustrate the first point, let us look briefly at, a, at an example from Frederick Douglass. Now, the title page of his 1845 narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass reported the text to be, quote unquote, written by himself. It included a frontispiece of Douglass underscored by his signature. And the copyright page records that Douglass registered the copyright himself. Now, Douglass's relationship with Garrison, William Lloyd Garrison, how Garrison authenticated Douglass's narrative, and the role that the American Anti Slavery Society played in publishing Douglass's first text has been, uh, had been well documented. But what has been virtually ignored, however, is how Frederick Douglass's 1855, My Bondage and My Freedom, a revised and expanded version of his, of his 1845 narrative, both definitively claims the space of author for Douglass and radically questions the very same subject position by depicting authorship's relationship to racialized systems of power. So briefly, Bondage, as we know, opens with a frontispiece of a new frontispiece of Douglas with his signature. Now, in the intervening ten years of publication between the 1845 narrative and the 1855 Bondage, renders absolutely unnecessary the claim written by myself. 
Douglas has become the country's most famous black author by 1855, and the text reiterates this, even in its table of contents, where the text speaks about Douglas in the third person and describes him, excuse me, it describes his chapters, the author's childhood, the author removed from his first home, the author's parentage, and on and on and on. As with any text, this claim to authorship sits alongside collaborative labors of the others that contributed to that text, an editor's preface, an introduction, and the employees of Miller, Orton, and Mulligan publishers. But despite having used the term author to describe Douglas throughout the table of contents and in other places, the text also uses the term author to signify one who inflicts pain and misery on enslaved persons. Douglas contrasts the splendor of his master's home with the depth and poverty of, and physical wretchedness of slavery. Douglas writes, quote, but there is a difference in the two extremes. For example, that in the case of the slave, the miseries and hardships of his lot are imposed by others. And in the master's case, they are imposed by himself. The slave is a subject subjected by others. The slaveholder is a subject, but he is the author of his own subjection. There is much to be said here, approximately five pages that I had to cut um, to be able to meet the, the five minute limit. So lots to be said, but today I'm gonna to limit myself to merely pointing out how Douglas here characterizes what Sadia Hartman calls scenes of subjection, whereby coming into being as a subject entails subjection to racialized power as being linked to a certain kind of authorship. My second example, very briefly, Martin Delaney, a free African-American writer, composed his novel Blake or the Huts of America in the late 18, 1850s, and it was serialized over a number of months in different editions, 1859 through 62, by African-American newspaper editors Thomas and Robert Hamilton in a way that impacted the way that the work could be read. And indeed, the serial publication of Blake, the novel, performs the logic of what Delaney elsewhere in his political writings called the nation within the nation as a specifically textual phenomenon. Just as Delaney's envisioned black nation within a U.S. nation constitutes its own identity, but also contributes to a larger whole, each of the novel installments, news stories, and poems of the weekly Anglo-African comprises its own text written at different times by different folks, but also conjoins together to form the text of that given periodical. The friction overlay in conversation among these various texts within texts can best be explored as a production of intra-textuality, a textual phenomenon that in Blake's case renders the 19th century problematic of race nations within nations analogous to the problematic of Blake's own textual existence. Each serial installment of Blake appeared alongside nonfiction pose, prose written by Delaney himself, articles on topics related to Blake, and advertisements for other printed versions of the novel. So the conversations produced by these texts within the larger text of the newspaper is what I call the collaborative intertextuality of Blake's serial format, which I argue produces meanings outside of traditional notions of authorship. Thank you. So is this volume okay for everybody too? Okay, cool. Um, when encountering late 19th century Japanese writers' works reprinted now, 
we almost always find them categorized by author. However, when we examine the way writing, reading, and criticism was actually taking place in the late 19th century, quite a different picture emerges of what constituted the author. Most literature was originally published in magazines or newspapers as opposed to in book form, although that did happen too, of course. And when we read reviews of the works, which themselves also appeared in periodicals, critics typically refer to them as belonging to their place of publication and even physical printing location as a primary organizing principle. By looking at Japanese literature through corporate authorship and the physical form of the periodical, we come closer to understanding how the literary and publishing establishments of the time produce the works that we re-encounter today. Here, I'll summarize some journal intention statements and critical reception of published works to illustrate my characterization of them as corporate authors and overs. One of the most striking examples of a magazine, here, that of a coterie, as a collective over it is Shigarami Zoshi, literally um, the weir, I think it's usually translated as, equally strange in English. Um, it's 1888 first issue carried a mission statement signed SSS, or Shinseisha, literally the Society of the New Voice. Here, SSS functions as a kind of author in itself, a collective author that speaks for the publication and thus for every text that appears within its pages. Shinseisha is careful to portray itself as an organization literally speaking in one voice as SSS. It doesn't list its membership, nor does it specify its leaders as many other publications might typically do. In its portrayal of itself, it's an anonymous collective, one in which individual identity may be less important than contributing to the group over in the form of the magazine. Shigarami Zoshi, then, is a constantly developing yet cohesive body of work that they create together at the site of collective authorship. And in fact, SSS was used as an authorial name even outside of this publication outlet. The journal was started with funds earned from the publication of the collective poetry translation project, Omokage, which was signed not with the individual names of the writers who contributed, but rather as SSS a corporate author with its own distinct character, even if its makeup is obscure. In terms of reader response to this kind of corporate authorial identity, I'll give several examples here that illustrate my point. Both the Coterie magazine Bungakai and general interest Kokumi no Tomo anonymously reviewed various issues of another literary magazine, Bungei Kurabu, comparatively, despite a lack of any thematic or social cohesion among them save for the special women's issue that appeared in 1897. Bungei Kurab's works here are seen as properly contextualized under the umbrella of the publication itself and reviews to be based in where they were published. In fact, the review columns in late 19th century magazines were often titled Shimbunzashi, or Newspapers and Magazines demonstrating a focus on the physical medium of the works rather than the works as reified texts. Literary journal Misamashigusa even went as far as to place reviews next to each other of works that originally also appeared next to each other in their own publications, remarking on that fact as though their physical proximity were of importance to their literary criticism. 
Even a review of one recently deceased author's complete works, published as a standalone book, identifies the placement of the stories in it. Its review of the story Nicodie begins with a note that it comes first in the anthology. But the physical medium of the work is not limited to placement for these reviewers. In a review of the story Mayon, the group of reviewers wraps up by characterizing it as a serial and remarking that that format is a shortcoming. They conclude the story simply doesn't hang together. There were, of course, reviews of individual works by themselves as well, not just comparatively, um, but these often refer first to the place of publication right next to the title as an essential context and to the author's second, often in a much smaller font or only within the review itself. In particular, several late 1880s reviews, prominent critic Ishibashi Ningetsu identifies author Ozaki Koyo's works as belonging to their publishers foremost, even those that appeared in book form, and to the rising star writer second. I'll conclude with a final example of a collective voice and reactions to it. Bungakai Magazine dedicated a special section on colored paper in its first few issues to reviews of itself that appeared in other outlets. These reviews largely engaged the magazine as a whole and responded to Bungakai itself as a cohesive publication with its own holistic identity. We can see that this kind of response was expected and welcome given that the magazine republished the reviews and even drew readers' attention to them. There's no inclusion of single reviews of individual works on these colored pages, if they existed at all in other publications, reflecting an emphasis on the collective nature of the publication as the voice of a specific coterie. Such collective spaces encourage reading of works comparatively together and ultimately grounded authorship in the medium of the publication. The writer here depends on the name of the publication as a kind of authorial identity, and the individual author becomes subsumed into the publication's corporate anonymous. Ultimately, the collective space of the magazine in the late 19th century in Japan contradicts and counters our received notions of authorship as something singular and coextensive with both the individual writer and his or her body of works, and provides a new way of conceiving of the relationship between authorship and publishing. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on this panel. Uh, my little talk today, or my roundtable contribution, comes from my forthcoming book. Uh, it's coming out next year. And um, the book is about the way in which manuscript illuminators, uh, medieval manuscript illuminators, visual artists, were essential to the rising prestige and canonization of English literature, but not because of their celebration of authors and image. In fact, quite the opposite. So this leads me to my opening question, which is who was Chaucer? Or who the hell was Geoffrey Chaucer? Which I don't say in the book. Um, the body lies, uh, that lies buried in Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey, the author of the Canterbury Tales, the narrator of the Canterbury Tales, the clerk of the King's works, the character hoisted in the talons of an eagle to the house of fame. Now this question prods us to recall the discursive formulation of categories like the author, um, and it spurs us to contemplate the quandaries that invoking a name stimulates. It also challenges us to consider Richard Brilliant's essential query on the genre of portraiture. Quote, who is the who that is being represented? But 
For the manuscript illuminator in 15th century London, this question of who was the author or who was Geoffrey Chaucer was a matter of professional concern, and illuminators found this question challenging. Visually speaking, you know, we all know Geoffrey Chaucer when we see him, right? It's this guy. Um, that's, I, I think, a, a, another version of this image taken from another manuscript is his avatar on Twitter. Um, but this image itself, a rendition of the man as character, is but one rendition in a range of responses to the brief that portraying an English author presented to the individuals who pictorially invented the English author in the 15th century. Among the witnesses of the Canterbury Tales are five separate images of Chaucer, each one a unique representation that attests to illuminators' indecision about the fitting visage of an English poet. One of these, which is what I'm going to focus on, is in the Devonshire Chaucer, a manuscript with an unusual historiated initial on its first folio, and which is now in the Beinecke Library forever. Here, they just got it. Um, here, within the frame of a distorted W, a blonde youth with rosy cheeks sit, uh, sits upon a turf bench, its verdant green also supporting the back to this, or creating the back to this imaginative lawn chair, if you will. The youth crooks his right elbow and supports a cheek on his hand, but his elbow floats freely in the air, unanchored by an armrest or other surface where an elbow might logically relax. Uh, with his left hand, he points downward and to the right in the same direction as his gaze, but neither his finger nor his gaze indicates anything in particular. Above, golden rays of sunlight stream down, and blue droplets of rain dribble down from the left, presumably our April shores or April showers. And the limited commentary that this initial has attracted, scholars have puzzled over its oddities. One has suggested that the image represents Chaucer as he depicts himself in his short poem, Complaint to His Purse, because he's got a purse. Um, Derek Pearsall thinks that maybe it refers to the Chaucer that's represented in The Legend of Good Women, another poem. More recently, maybe Helmo suggested that the scene ennobles the author, which captures him in drowsy deflation before divine inspiration strikes. Now, while this and the other meanings assigned to the minutiae in this initial may certainly have occurred to this initial's original audience, what these attempts to fix a plan to the illumination overlook is the actual process of revision that occurred while this plan was underway. In short, what we are looking at here is a plan B. Patterns of overlaid paint, the responsive direction of the brushwork around the central figure, and passages of scraping all enable us to reconstruct the sequence of the illuminator's activities and pinpoint the moment in that sequence when he changed his mind. The Chaucer figure was painted first, and he clearly was meant to appear as he does here. The scene around him, however, changed so that at some point when the artist was creating the red <laughs> backdrop, he stopped, scraped some away, and began painting the green that eventually became the illogical hillock chair on which Chaucer now sits. In typical representations uh, from this period, see this weird trapezoidal-like space? That would be the back retaining wall of the image, and there are plenty of other examples. You get a green floor, a red background, and some weird retaining wall. Um, so finally, the artist then added drops of rain to which the figure points now, but it's possible that in conception, he was meant to be at a desk pointing at a book. A later printed page to the title page to the Parliament of Fowls suggests a lost model for what we currently see. So, you know, maybe both of these and the original plan for this one um, had a similar inspiration, but uh, illuminators changed it because they didn't feel comfortable in this period 
putting an English author at a desk writing like an evangelist. And what has not been recognized up to this point is that of all the images that survive of Geoffrey Chaucer, John Gower, and John Lydgate, the triumvirate, only one portrays the figure writing, and that's a weird image of Gower sitting on a bed. So these are not our evangelist auctories. So the question is, why this indecision? Well, one can never know for certain, but it's only alongside the tradition of Chaucerian representation, which is no tradition at all, that we see how across these manuscripts, illuminators struggled to determine an adequate visage and guise for its author. Together, the images that make up this pictorial corpus record indecision, an attitude that is neither celebratory nor apathetic to the conception of the author. Far more interesting than that, uh, these are documents of quizzed thought in the moment of a discursive categories formulation. Thanks. No author in any period of English literature so dominated a field as Shakespeare, and Shakespeare has also dominated the history of bibliography, as central to the development of new bibliography in the early 20th century as to the revisionist bibliography of the past 30 or so years. Indeed, the authority of analytic bibliography itself as a methodology that can reveal facts about the past depends in large part upon a series of early discoveries about Shakespeare's texts. Primary among these were A.W. Pollard's discovery of the difference between the good and bad texts of Shakespeare and W.W. Gregg's discovery of the false imprints of a series of Shakespeare quartos now usually known as the Pavier quartos. Pollard's bad quartos argument has not aged so well. What once seemed a discovery now seems an overly confident generalization from scant and imperfectly understood evidence. But Gregg's discovery of the Pavier quartos remains widely accepted as a testament to the power of analytic bibliography. The Pavier Quartos consisted of 10 plays, all of them in some way connected to Shakespeare. Two bound volumes of them survive in early bindings, one at the Folger and one at Texas Christian University. While A Yorkshire Tragedy and Sir John Oldcastle are not now considered Shakespearean, they both have his name on the title page. Pericles, Yorkshire Tragedy, and Merry Wives are dated 1619 but the whole contention is undated, and the other five plays are dated either 1600 or 1608. Five of the playbooks list TP as the publisher, the initials belong to Thomas Pavier, but the others have various names in the imprints. In a 1908 essay in the library, Greg showed that the woodblock printer's device, used on the title page of Midsummer Night's Dream, dated 1600, showed greater signs of damage than when it was used on another book printed in 1605, a logical impossibility. Most importantly, through close analysis of the watermarks in the paper of these playbooks, Greg demonstrated that they all contained the same mix of paper stocks, which is vanishingly unlikely if the plays were indeed printed as much as 19 years apart. The inescapable conclusion is that the plays dated earlier than 1619 were deliberately falsified. In fact, they were all printed at the same time in the shop of William and Isaac Jaggard, the same printers who would soon be involved in the first folio. Since in 1619, the Jaggards the owned the printer's device that appears on Dream and the one that appears on all the other plays. <clears throat> Greg argued that Pavier's fear of being exposed for piracy was not the only reason for the fraud. The King's Men, he wrote, got wind of Pavier's enterprise and invoked the protection of authority in the middle of the work on the project. 
The Lord Chamberlain, William Herbert, one of the dedicatees of the first folio, wrote to the stationer's company, forbidding them to print any King's Men's plays, presumably in anticipation of their own forthcoming Shakespeare collection. And the fraudulent imprints revealed the underhanded attempt to evade that order. Greg thereby showed that the Pavier Cordos were the first attempt at a collection of the works of William Shakespeare. And that's what the Philadelphia book dealer, uh, A.S.W. Rosenbach, wrote on the flyleaf of the copy that Folger, uh, the first cop complete bound copy of the Pavier Cordos that was known, which, which is now at the Folger. Only three years after his death, Shakespeare was valued so highly that his plays were already being canonized in a collected volume. The narrative uh, that Greg told, the narrative of fraud and piracy that revealed the Pavier Cordos, also propped up the authority of the second such collection, in which Shakespeare's friends, Hemmings and Condell, famously complain that book buyers have previously been deceived with stolen and surreptitious copies, as opposed to these frauds and stealths of injurious impostors. Sorry, that's so low on the screen. Um, the text in the folio are genuine products of Shakespeare's hand. So in this way, Greg's discovery contributed to the new bibliographic division of Shakespeare's printed texts into good and bad, authoritative and piratical. And that division, I would, I would argue, underlies a huge amount of the new bibliographic uh, work on authorial canons more broadly, beyond the Renaissance, beyond Shakespeare, certainly. I've been working on the paper quarters for a couple years now, taking a fresh look at as many copies of them as I can, about 175 thus far. And I found some things that confirm Greg's theory, including far more evidence of deceptive imprints than was previously known, and others that challenge them. I want to focus on one challenge today because it concerns authorship. One thing has become clear to me. This first attempt at a collection of the works of William Shakespeare was not quite as Shakespearean as we thought. The 18th century bishop, Thomas Percy, once owned a complete volume of Pavier Cordos, the remains of which are now at the Folger, individually bound. And there's an odd table of contents on the flyleaf of one of these books. Leading off the list, here, is Thomas Haywood's play, A Woman Killed with Kindness, a play that was clearly attributed to Haywood on the title page of every early edition. Now, you might say that Percy simply bound up his copy of Haywood's play with the Shakespeare plays in a zamobond of his own design. But here's the last blank verso of a copy of the Pavier Quarto of Henry V at the Huntington Library. Uh, here it is. Jeffrey Todd Knight noticed an odd effect here, a ghost image of the title page of the book that used to be bound immediately after Henry V. So this is the last verso of Henry V, and you can see something here. And this is the ghost image of Haywood's Woman Killed with Kindness. Now, once might be a zamobond, and twice might be a coincidence, but I figure three times is definitely a pattern. I found this item in an auction catalog from 1774, another complete pavier collection, this one with Woman Killed included at the end. These are clearly three different uh, volumes because the ordering of the plays doesn't align in any of those three examples. So it's become clear that Haywood's play was included in the collection from the start, sold from the stationer's shop as part of this first Shakespeare collection, probably because Haywood's play had been published two years earlier by the same printers, William and Isaac Jaggard, who printed the Pavier Quartos. 
This is the only published collection of professional drama in the period, featuring multiple non-collaborating authors. The only one to bind together the plays of one playwright, or playwriting partnership, with a play explicitly advertised as by someone else entirely. But Bishop Percy doesn't seem to have balked at the fact that a Hayward play led off his volume, and book buyers in 1619 must not have done so either, given the frequency with which it now appears that Woman Killed was bound up with the Shakespeare plays. But this configuration should cause us to reconsider the nature of dramatic authorship in early modern England. Jagged was later chosen by the Kingsmen to print and help publish the first folio, a fact that caused some embarrassment to the new bibliographers, who tended to place the blame firmly on Pavier to avoid blurring the lines between these good and bad Shakespeare collections. But perhaps it's been more important to us, after the new bibliography, than it was to Hemings and Condell that there be no overlap between the publishers of the 1619 collection and the first folio. The King's Men may not have been concerned with punishing Jaggard, even if they did know about what I now think of as the Jaggard Cordos. Jaggard was a good and experienced printer of plays, and the folio project was by no means a guaranteed success that any stationer would have jumped at. The King's Men, their main goal was to quash this rival collection, and in that they were largely successful, since what emerged from Jaggard's shop in 1619 did not resemble anything like a typical dramatic collection of the time. By forcing this material transformation of the project, the Kingsmen protected their investment in Shakespeare as a unitary author and their power to establish exactly what his works were. The folio, of course, creates the Shakespearean canon that we still largely follow today. Had this earlier collection succeeded, the complete works of William Shakespeare might have meant something quite different. The material appearance of these books is a quiet bibliographic reminder of that power struggle. Thanks. Good afternoon. Um, Candace and I are here today to discuss the bibliographical database that we've been building for over three years. Just feels like yesterday that we started, right? <laughs> um, the Women's Print History Project, 1750 to 1836, gathers detailed bibliographical data about female involvement in British print culture during one of its most tumultuous periods in order to assess, quantify, and elaborate upon Virginia Woolf's hunch that, and here I'm quoting her, towards the end of the 18th century, a change came about which, if I were writing history, I should describe more fully and think of greater importance than the Crusades or the War of the Roses. The middle class woman began to write. Now, Woolf's hyperbole aside, um, her statement highlights for us the romantic emphasis on authorship. Working at the intersection of literary history, book history, bibliography, feminist studies, and digital humanities, our project seeks to collect data about women's authorship, but also to challenge the centrality of authorship to these fields. As a large-scale bibliographical project, we move away from the foundational feminist scholarship of the past 50 years, which has understandably been centered on the recovery of a handful of successful women writers, uh, women like Jane Austen, Frances Burney, Mariah Edgeworth, Sarah Fielding, and so on. As important as these studies have been, they address, necessarily, a very small fragment of women active during the period, 
and exclusively address authorship. Of the few attempts that have been made to present a broader account of women's commercial engagements with print, all or at least 20 years old, and none um, use a digital approach. Nor have large-scale book historical surveys made gender integral to, integral to their analysis. Only one chapter out of 49 in volume five of the Cambridge History of the Book, of, Book in Britain, 1695 to 1830, addresses women. Isabel Grundy in Women in Print, Readers, Writers in the Market asks, what difference did women make to the book trade in the long 18th century and reaches the conclusion that we simply do not know. Digital humanities scholarship has began to, begun to ask how, as an emergent discipline, it may be guilty of reproducing assumptions and hierarchies from other cognate fields, but a variety of factors, including the economics of digital scholarship, has not resulted in the canon-busting many feminist literary scholars had hoped for. So one of our central aims has been to track women's involvement in the making and circulation of books in an attempt to acknowledge the distributive and collaborative nature of bookmaking itself. Um, by expanding our understanding of women's engagement with print culture, we seek to look beyond authorship to collect data about women's involvement as editors, translators, engravers, printers, and booksellers. At the same time, and not surprisingly, our attempt to track individual women's involvement in book production has proved challenging. The little research that has been done on um, women in the book trade points to a significant decrease in activity after the start of the 18th century, though again, this may be an example of confirmation bias. We don't see evidence of women explicitly working in the book trades because we think it doesn't exist, and the resources we have reflect that assumption. Um, as we've been discovering, many women actually just worked under their first initials or their hus husband's names or their husband's firms. Um, so recovering them presents challenges to our ability to reconstruct the print networks that women participated in. Um, this lack of evidence is furthered by the fact that many printers, booksellers, and circulating library proprietors from this period remain shadowy presences on the margins of literary history, whether or not they were women. Um, so our difficulties point to how the period's book culture itself renders our attempt to decenter the author challenging. Throughout the hand-press period we study, books are structured around their authors, and over the 18th century, the growing cult of authorship only intensified this emphasis. Um, while book historians have spearheaded a move away from only accounting for authorship in textual studies, the many women who labored in the making of books occupied positions still not accounted for by Darnton's communication circuit, such as illustration and translation, and so remain less visible to present-day scholars. Um, beyond these particular difficulties relating, related to limited data, uh, the scope of the database in general has proven a bit of a challenge. Um, so in, in preparing for this presentation, we've been revisiting some of our naive assumptions about how long this project would take because we seriously <laughs> underestimated how many women were involved in print and how many books they produced. Michelle recently told me that when she started conceptualizing this project, she thought we'd just find like a few thousand titles. Um, and then I almost cried <laughs> because we, at present, have over 11,000 titles and we're really only comprehensive at this point and not even that comprehensive up to and including 1800 where the ESTC ends. Um, so we've got over 11,000 titles and over 7,000 individual women involved 
in book production. Um, so this is a substantially higher number, well over double what we kind of expected we'd find. Um, so this is particularly striking, this sort of like massive involvement of women in print that we didn't expect, given that our data model is really only designed to capture women's involvement in the production of books, their involvement in other forms of print, periodicals, newspapers, engraved prints and maps, will not be included, at least not in the current iteration of the project, meaning that the tens of thousands of women's books and the thousands of women who made them that we have recovered will only ever represent one part of their total contributions. While acknowledging the limitations of our project has at times been a source of deep frustration, the fact that women's involvement in print has proven substantial enough to cause these problems provides a significant challenge to scholarly assumptions about how and how much and in what ways women contributed to print during our period. In the preface to the second edition of the Critique of Pure Reason, 1787, Immanuel Kant, the 18th century German philosopher who published his magnum opus at the age of 50, after 10 years of publishing silence, solicited help from his readers. The initial reviewers of what would become one of modern philosophy's canonical texts couldn't understand it. Kant's critics highlighted, I'm just quoting from a few samples here, his terse writing style, his disregard for the greatest part of the reading public, and his irredeemable abstractions that hovered too much in the clouds. For Kant, these criticisms were about style and the limits of technologies such as writing and print, not content. So he implored a small, again in the preface, he implored a small unnamed cadre of scholars to quote, refine the text, but instructed them to leave alone the underlying philosophical system, which he, rather confidently, equated with reason itself. Philosophical truth, he as much acknowledged, needed editorial and even philological help. Philosophy and the philosopher in particular, so it seemed, did, after all, need print, even if the printed page got in the way of reason itself, interrupted the authority or the authorship of reason. And by the time Kant had published his request for help in 1787, scholars had actually taken him, taken him up on his call, and they had begun to respond. Doing so, they helped create the persona of the critical philosopher and define for generations <coughs> excuse me, the character of modern philosophy, the presentation of ideas in systematic, rigorous, and argumentative form, and they also tied this printed presentation to the philosopher as author. By the end of the decade, so much was being written about Kant's work that entire periodicals were started to defend and to defy it. In 1788, for example, the um, a Kantian acolyte um, named J.A. Eberhard published the first volume of the Philosophical Magazine, a periodical dedicated to, quote, providing news about the philosophical world, especially any philosophical di disagreements unleashed by Kant's critique. Thanks to the e efforts of Eberhard, for example, and other supporters, Kant's initial hope that the critique would be refined and more widely engaged had been fulfilled. Kant was not only a philosopher in Eastern Prussia, he was the author of a system of reason, with an increasingly influential presence decisively shaping not only individual philosophers, um, such as Fichte, Hegel, and Schelling, but also an entire intellectual and scholarly culture that would come to be known as German idealism. The many books and articles devoted to establishing or attacking Kant exemplified a genre that exploded more broadly in Germany around 1800. As Eberhard wrote, the German reading public had become more philosophical. 
Philosophy had begun to break outside the bounds of the school, as he put it, and gain interest among the great masses. But this worried him as well. The unconstrained distribution of philosophical ideas through print technologies, he wrote, gave, gave, um, gave rise to increasing numbers of charlatans and pseudo-philosophers. The status of philosophy as Wissenschaft, that is a science in the broader German sense of the term, was new and fragile, and it had to be protected. True philosophy, unlike the musings of the ancient Greeks or the disjointed discourses of contemporary writers, was, he announced, a profession. It was an autonomous university discipline in need of no other knowledge but its own arguments and concepts. And printed periodicals, journals, and books were an essential element in this professionalization of philosophy and the invention of the philosopher as an author. Now, these attempts by Kantians in the last two decades of the 18th century to define philosophy as a strictly systematic form of inquiry amounted to an implicit rejection of an older German conception of philosophy, a philologically oriented approach that primarily sought to organize <coughs> in bibliographic form a wide range of texts on matters broadly considered philosophical. Just as Linnaeus had collected animals and plants, early 18th century German scholars collected propositions and concepts and ideas and organized them in print. Philosophy as a universal category was best understood in terms of the particulars that constituted it, not printed systems. The relatively rapid ascendance of the Kantian vision of philosophy as Wissenschaft, as necessarily systematic, was based as much on a positive def definition of philosophy as system as it was on a rejection of what should not count as philosophy. Could songs, legends, aphorisms, and folklore, for example, the kinds of things that interested Kant's erstwhile student-turned-proto-anthropologist Hera, count as philosophy? Was, and I'll stop here, the philosopher necessarily an author? Thank you. Hey, Michelle. Are you all talking to Daniel Pitty and the people at Snack at all? Do you know? Does that... We should talk. <laughs> Thank you all for coming out. It's good to see so many people um, thinking about these matters and excited about them. Thank you, Andrasha and Caroline, for inviting me. Um, there are only a few people on the face of the planet Earth who have sufficient expertise to be able to synthesize the power of this breath. And none of them are in this room. <laughs> but I appreciate the opportunity to talk. <laughs> the large frame for this panel's papers is a resistance, now widespread and long-standing, to limiting our understanding of authorship to the romantic conception of the unitary author who has intentions, interiority, the potential for genius, all of which are properties that distinguish him or her, usually him, from other subjects. This conception has had and continues to exert a widespread influence, not least because it is tied to a regime of intellectual property that has emerged since, well, since some controversial point in time, <laughs> but a long time ago, in which not just fame, but fortune, would accrue to that author. All of these papers offer alternatives to that vision. Some focus on milieu or cadre, uh, Chad's term, or coterie, Molly's term, 
or even something like a seam, as in the case of Molly's paper on Japan, where indexicality is organized by located communal productions and is even produced as a function of communal interreaction. Um, or in the case of Kant and the scholarly community that grew up around him and required a multi-authorial domain of engagement to establish the legitimacy of the kind of collective enterprise that a discipline represents. Uh, I'm going to come back to, to that since uh, interdisciplinarity is one of the organizing um, concepts here um, and I want to come back and interrogate that even. Collaboration has been another healthy focus, our collective authorship, as in Charles's paper on race um, and authorship, uh, or uh, Sonia Drimmer's attention to the revision process in the Chaucer-historiated initial fascinating, um, or the case of the history of women in publishing database. These are slightly different scenarios, but they all involve thinking beyond the writer as individual or even sometimes as the epicenter of a publishing event. In Childs' case, for example, you have the notion of a collective context of writers in which the use of the romantic figure of the author is a strategic choice happening despite a much more complex landscape of co-writing and mutual authentication. Um, you could say something like this for some indigenous writers as well, for whom authorship was and, to a certain extent, continues to be a colonizing concept. Um, with Drimmer's work and with the Women's Print History Project database, there Ruth asked to think about what happens when one widens that frame away from writing or even printing to book selling, promotion, illustration, translation, a host of practices that don't necessarily track easily onto Habermasian print rationality or the authorship as text creation notion. What I think Zach is talking about is yet another vision of authorship in which you have authorship that matters, right? You have, you know, Mr. William Shakespeare. <laughs> You've got Thomas Haywood. Um, and you even have um, the king's men who, who here function as a unitary agent in a power struggle. Um, these are individually recognized as authors um, uh, in some way, um, Shakespeare and Haywood in the compendium, but the question of the way the cultural significance of the author or individual authorship links up to literary culture more broadly then becomes a different matter. If we care deeply about purifying Shakespeare now, not just a bibliographical enterprise, but a culture-wide obsession, books, movies, and so on, it's in part because there are competitors whose productions were valued in ways we don't understand, and not just because we're afraid it will break down our happy vision of individual property and authorship or of originality as a potential in each of us. Though apparently the likelihood that your kid will become president someday is way higher than that they'll turn out to be a Shakespeare. <laughs> Democracy has yet to arrive in literary studies, for better or worse. Certainly the monotheistic conception of authorship has tended to obscure our understanding of the historically specific conjunctions of technology, genre, and human invention that have constituted past modes of reading and writing, of distribution and the circulation of literature and other texts. That conception of the unitary author giving us access to eternal truths has actually impeded our ability to read the past, to read both with and against the impulses and prejudices of people and societies from the past. So it's good to dig up this turf, allow us better to understand how people read and wrote. But I want to take these papers' insights, these projects' insights, their new conceptions for organizing 
historical analysis. Uh, and I, I want to pull back the lens a little bit to um, what we're all doing here, um, to bibliography, um, its role, its purposes, uh, what it's doing in our culture right now, what it might do. Because um, I think I don't. I don't think we can uh, wait too long on doing that. Maybe we need to be thinking in other modes about the properties of bibliography and its connection to a regime of ownership and monetary recompense whose grounding premise is the individual. Um, and, I, and I say this, uh, well, I'm going to use an extreme example, but because, um, very, because most of us are doing this for reasons that are mixed, that are complicated, and have not just to do with individual rewards and not just to do with the capitalistic marketplace, um, but with uh, an investment that has to do um, with passions and excitements and aesthetics and lots of things. So first, just many of us here, uh, a lot of authors in this room, right? A lot of soon-to-be authors, a lot of want-to-be authors. You will be. Um, but many of us are working under a professional regime heavily dominated by the romantic authorship model. Um, this is one of the things that can often mark differences between folks working in literary studies and folks working in libraries, for example. And it's a crucial structuring factor. Um, it's one of the great things about RBS that it, that it brings these folks together, and it's also it's sometimes a source of tension. Um, you don't get tenure, and you don't get promoted for writing co-authored books. The occasional awesome exceptions to that prove the rule. Um, we have book writing fellowships not for collectives, for the most part, but for individuals. You write your narrative. You look like an author to the RBS or the NEH. You get a fellowship. You don't look like an author, you don't. That would be one thing if it were not happening in an institutional context in which in other fields collaboration is normal and even necessary to that, ex that exact same authentication or promotion. But bibliography and many of its related humanistic disciplines are currently still somewhat dependent on this romantic vision. Bookselling as a profession, the publishing industry, these are dependent upon the idea of the monadic author. So to challenge this idea may require being more explicit about what we lose when we displace this unitary notion of the author, not just what we gain in realizing that, for example, the history of minority resistance movements is a history of necessarily collaborative authorship, even in the most separatist circumstances. Um, at stake may be the coherence of a profit-driven capitalistic system where books constitute commodities, new used and rare, uh, and to which bibliography, as currently conceived, can continue to speak. Secondly, maybe as a step toward that, I think it is worth thinking about bibliography in a theoretical or maybe even somewhat spiritual way. I mean, we kind of practice it like... Uh, it, it often distinctly not as those things, um, but uh, what's, what's in it for us? What's in it for you? Um, as a collaborator and as an individual writer working on this stuff, and how much should we be talking about that too as um, part and parcel um, of, of our historiography um, and of our, even of our thinking about how to organize a project? What does it mean to keep invoking authorship as the way of talking about property or your relationship to your academic work under the banner of bibliography? 
as an identity concept that remains an organizing unit even when we talk about it as collaborative, distributed, or collective. I'm borrowing some tricks from Kant here. Um, so you want to depose the monotheist's god as author and vice versa, but what if there are many gods? So I get this, this is what I guess I would ask. My sense is that there's some other intellectual formal gesture, some other intervention one could make by not organizing a project around authorship, even when you're trying to break that concept down. There is some formal property of a research or historiographical project that would make bibliography a different kind of activity. Um, what is a thriving bibliographic enterprise in a world that increasingly involves distributed creativity in many forms? Massive multiplayer online gaming, crowdsourcing, activism, social media reporting. Ownership in all those activities has to do with participation, endurance, cleverness, intervention, protocol acquisition in a kind of sustained way, you know, not high scores or named authorship. If a world that isn't just about authors is a world we already understand, in some way. What does that look like uh, in bibliography? And I think these papers, and to an extent this conference, um, its workshops, its working groups, um, these are a step toward a sustainable ecology of bibliographical and book historical study. Um, so thank all of you for these great papers, and thank you for putting us in the room together. We have time for questions. Right. We have, yeah, right? Yeah, we have like 30 minutes. Sweet. That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, long table. <laughs> right here. Um, I wanted to respond to this sort of call for what we, call, what we might call a radical bibliography. And I wanted to come back to this term corporate authorship because I think it has. Like sort of two possible directions it can go in, right? We can think about that as right, like the sort of early ideal of sort of incorporation in law is to do with like the public good, like towns are incorporated, uh, churches and social organisations incorporated. But obviously, we all know the rise of the corporation is this neoliberal capitalistic endeavour where uh, a corporation can kind of be a person without any of the sort of responsibilities of personhood. So I was thinking about like, how do we wrestle with this problem of corporate authorship when it might promise collectivity, collaboration, but then it also sort of might damage the individual, the mm -hmm. idea of the, what if the corporation owns the copyright, right? Like quite literally, or you know, it's not your work, it belongs to say, I mean, literally I'm thinking about I'm asking my institution, can I take this exhibition from your website if I leave, if I leave the institution? Like where does that, is sort of this DH project has become an institutional repository. So I mean, the question would begin from this notion called authorship, which I think is beautifully explained in terms of pure culture, but I want to open that out more broadly to think about kind of like the rewards and the dangers of that. I was shaking my head emphatically because um, because it reminds me of something that was a, a lightning moment when I was in graduate school. And I'm quoting from, from paraphrasing from Linda Malcolm here, who described, you know, one of my favorite things when I was in graduate school was reading both Bart and Foucault on the death of the author and what is an author. And she wrote that about 10 years after those essays were produced, it seems not a coincidence to me that we are questioning, or rather we are committing the death of the author in the moment when women authors are finally being recognized as individuals. So I think there is something to be, right? So, so, and this is why your project is so important, but I think that there is something um, 
lost when we only start to when we start to unravel this category. Um, and that's why I was shaking my head. But um, I'll let those who are who are actually invoking the terms corporate authorship respond. Corporate and collaborative. I noticed that each of these different terms. Thank you for asking that question. Um, and I, in here today, I don't think I used the term um, corporate, but those are the very questions that I'm trying to get in the context of my own work. Personhood means something very specific in antebellum America. Race differentially. Individualism means something very different, like different race individually, um, or excuse me, race <coughs> specifically. Um, and when I use the term collaboration, one of the things that I need to be able to communicate in a not a three-page paper is that <laughs> I don't mean it necessarily in a happy-go-lucky we all come together and work to, to work together seamlessly or without tension. It's actually the opposite of that. And what I mean is <coughs> co-laborers multiple versions of labor going into the production of the book, which also means something very specific across um, different folks, for different folks in antebellum America. Um, but I think I think that you're right, and for me, those two, I see what you're saying, you can go one way, the happy, go lucky, we all come together and collaborate, or thinking about the rise of the corporation as a person, and for me, all of those issues are still at play. So that's not to answer your question at all, but to say thank you for that, because that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, if I, since I'm the one who used the word corporate, I thought I should respond as well. I love it, I'm not critiquing it. Okay, no, I didn't, I didn't take that as you know badly or anything. Um, I think you raise a really excellent point that there is a dark side to it, that um, the people who are doing the labor can become subsumed in an entity taking credit and receiving profit for others' labor. And I think in this case, the reason why I started using that word and the reason why I pursued this as a method <coughs> is when I was doing research on authorship as a performance, as an, an individual group of individuals trying to do something, I found so many of these reviews that are of a magazine or that attribute a book to its publisher instead of its author. And it really struck me that this is how people are reading it. And you can, you or a number of people can sign a name or no name, however you or they want to, at the point of publication, but then it's out of your hands. And you lose control at a certain point, whether it's to your publisher who's advertising the book and they're getting credit for it, or to readers. I think there is a lot of emphasis put on the agency of the author and the, the intention of the author and what is the author doing, but the author really <coughs> does completely lose control at a certain point. And um, you actually, your question made me articulate that for myself, so thank you. I would just very briefly, I would say that we also, in kind of humanistic practices more broadly, we have wonderful traditions of not just single author, not just of monographs, but of collaborative projects, distributed labor. I mean, Tony, Tony Grafton was talking about it this morning. I mean, this is, we know how to do this. We, you know, those interested in kind of humanistic labor. Um, and I think that's the first step to return to traditions that have oftentimes been overlooked and to recover models, not all necessarily good, right, <coughs> that we want to do, but I think we have histories um, to reread and to reimagine the kinds of labor that we can going forward uh, 
support. I, I would add that there are histories of resistance to the kind of pressure from institutions at moments at which intellectual property is changing that we can also draw on to, you know, that that's, that's like an important moment in bibliography when you say, no, I want to take that with me, and, you know, and negotiate that. Um, thank you for such a wonderful panel. Um, I had a, so going through my mind this whole time, sparked originally by your paper when you mentioned Delaney talking about imagining a nation within a nation, and then sparked further by the idea of Chaucer, the English poet, father of the English nation, etc. Um, sort of that the unifying fiction of authorship is intimately bound up with the unifying fiction of nationalism as well, right? Obviously, um, and and that's reinforced also. Then picking up on what you were saying about the structure of our discipline, also so much reinforced by the nationalizing fictions at work within disciplines: English, German, Japanese. Right? We have all the all these terms in specifically literary fields are divided into nations stemming from the nineteenth century. And so my question for you guys was just. Um, how, what do we do with that, right? <laughs> well, how, I know it's like the biggest, uh, sorry, and I apologize, I'm writing a book on this myself, so this is like obsessing me, which is why I'm pushing it to you guys. But so how do we, if we, uh, we're, we're doing such good work with atomizing and breaking down authorship, thinking about corporate authorship, collaborative authorship, um, all these different varying models that are taking apart the idea of the author, but we're still stuck with the idea of the nation because we also all like live in it. So what do we, what do we do with that? We're all gonna have a deep think right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll vamp while everybody comes up with something better. I'm serious. Um, so I struggle with this a lot because in the flashy, like when I was writing my book proposal and in my <coughs> intro, there's a section where I talk about, you know, um, the the cornerstone of the English literary canon is being written against the background of two defining conflicts, the Hundred Years' War and the Wars of the Roses, and my book straddles those periods. And um, I kept coming up against challenges to that because I could not find a way to fit that within the actual narrative of my book. So I'm, I'm not, I mean, I know that you're writing a lot about this, but I think that this idea of the nation and its relationship to these singular authors is something that is more important to us as critics now than it was necessarily in the moment of its formation. And there I go, I'm done vamping. So does anyone? That's a theater term. I'll just um, pipe up about an article that I'm writing right now where I'm trying to take on this issue in a smaller way than I would like to. Um, I ran across um, a published piece of writing from both um, Charlotte Bronte and then a Japanese author, Moi Ogai, about their use of their own pseudonyms. And that really struck me, and I can't even remember how I found the Charlotte Bronte piece, because here I'm writing a dissertation about 19th century Japanese literature in, in my bubble, and I found this and thought, they both are writing within you know 50 years of each other in these very different contexts, but they're both talking about their motivations for pseudonyms and their performance of authorship. There has to be something here that I can compare and learn about you know how do humans create things and put them out in the world in the 19th century more broadly. So I feel like that kind of trend. I hate to use the word transnational because it does like highlight the nation even in that word, mm -hmm. but. Looking at concepts more than a specific time and place, I think, can be a way to resist that. But I mean, that's a very frustrating aspect of literary scholarship for me, especially because 
Asian studies is often not in the foreground, and people just hear the word Japan first and think that's very foreign. I can't understand that. And I'm trying to, I don't know, almost <coughs> decentralize de British literary culture by, you know, throwing it into this Japanese studies paper. But I feel like, you know, other people could be could be doing that too. I think we have a lot to learn from each other. Um, back to you, Molly. Mm -hmm. A question about where did the practice come from of listing not the individual but the publisher or whatever corporate author? And then you said it was different colored paper. Mm -hmm. What color? Was it the same color? Was that, again, part of the formality? Or just sort of they needed the color paper and there it was? Yeah, um, I remember in one, one issue it was orange and another issue it was pink. Um, and the other pages were, of course, more <coughs> in the publication. Just to take the easy question first, um, I was so surprised when I when I held you know the issue in my hands and looked. Is some of this in color? And then I flipped through it, and there it is, all reviews about themselves. You're like, hey, look at us. Look at these great reviews we're getting. Of course, they were all good, right? Um, as for your first question, I actually am not sure where it came from. I've just seen it happening. And it's, I would say, 1880s is when I really saw that happening a lot. But I also am a later 19th century person. And that's also when like, the mass media started really spreading. And Japan was like in the 1870s. And it really picked up the pace through the 1880s with newspapers and larger circulation. So I feel like. Technologically, it had to have started at that point. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, my question isn't really a question so much as like a comment that anybody else would like to respond to. I think that you all and many people in this room, I suspect, have done really important work of exploding this model author idea. But I also was really happy with the way like Sonia and, and Chad also were delimiting it in really important ways in specific contexts, right? Like an author is not an evangelist, right? An author is maybe not a philosopher. Um, and I was just curious if that was something you all wanted to comment on as well in, in the particularities of your own cases. I didn't have that perspective. <laughs> I find myself being the first one to dive in, probably advisedly. Um, well, I think you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I thought to myself, I'm the only pre-modernist here, right? Yeah, and so, uh, right, what do we call modern? Ne we have never been modern. Um, and I was going somewhere with this. Um, right, so the, the, the category of the author as it was formulated um, already exists in the period that's being examined. And I think Molly is really the only other one who doesn't, who isn't working with that same concept. Um, so what, I'm, what I was looking at is the way in which people who were co-producers of this literature, without whom it would not have existed, were trying to think of, well, what, what are these people? Like they weren't saying, I don't think this guy's an author. They were saying, well, what is an author? Who, who, who is this guy? And in certain cases, especially you know, with um, another English poet, uh, Gower, they, they literally did not know in certain manuscripts whether he was a character <coughs> or the person responsible for composing the work. Hmm. Yeah. I, 
I mean, I think some of it's the, the same is true for, for dramatic authorship in, mm. in, the, yeah. in early modern England. Right. So um, I, I find the term author is sort of unhelpful as a, right. a general term. Um, so, you know, in, in, <laughs> in early modern England, there's a big difference between a playwright, a poet, um, a theologian, yeah. right? All of them are writers and authors in some loose sense of that term. But like, I don't think anyone would have put them all in the same basket in the period. So, um, and in each of those categories, they're they're working out exactly what what does this person mean, right? In relation to other loci of authority, um, whether it's a particular congregation or a, a theatrical company or some other court. Um, so I think, you know, we're all, you can't talk about authorship without in some way thinking about like romantic, uh, which itself is a confused category, right, mm. in, in the romantic period. So um, that's inevitable and fine, but I think um, it's one of those giant, it, it's really, I think of it as like one of those giant ideal forms, um, I'm conscious of <laughs> being on a real philosopher, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that one of the things that I uh, think bibliography like does when I want to like evangelize, for like bibliography is corrosive of ideological, of ideology, when you're writing. Um, and so when you start looking closely enough, bibliographically enough at any of these things, you, you I think inevitably, unless you really have blinders on, um, will start to break down a category like and many others. Yeah. Um, just a quick word. What I find so fascinating about this one case study, on the one hand, you have Kant, a self-identified philosopher, um, who denies, in fact, <coughs> the degradation of reason through writing, and yet is acutely sensitive to it. And so he would deny the category. He's, he's not a shushta, right? He's not, he's not an author. He's not a writer. He doesn't even actually write. And in the last section of the the conflict of the faculties, there's this wonderful um, point where he talks about um, the typography of, of something of his that had been printed and how it was bad and it gave him a headache and then he compares that to trying to hold a concept you know, um, clear and distinct to his mind's eye, right? So he really hates that. But then on the other hand, all these people that I find much more fascinating than actually the critique of pure reason, the ones who are basically trying to create Kant qua author. Um, and, he, and on the one hand, he needs them just like he needs writing and print. But on the other hand, um, he disdains them. And yet, the very figure of Kant and Kantianism is created by appeal through this very notion of authorship. And then if you know anything about the history of, kind of German philosophy over the course of the 19th century, that is, well, I would say, one of the problems. I mean, you could call, you know, after you know Hegel dies, it's basically after Hegel. Right, and he yeah. is the philosopher as ultimate Prussian author. Um, if you want to talk back to the state problem, um, so anyway, so I, that's why I find this so fascinating, and why it is important to, to differentiate um, historically, culturally, but also disciplinarily, um, different notions of the authors. Yeah, and I would add to to that to, to what Zach was saying that it's it's partly when you when you are forced to look at the world in the close way the bibliography prescribes, but it's also the distance. Um, you know, with the with your project and women writers, eleven thousand and you're just getting started, right? Because the you can see those categories start to fall apart the second you try to implement a bibliographical project either at that, that level of, you know, 
erasing the zero, you know, off the title page, or or of trying to gather all of the collaborative labor that goes into the production of text that women are involved in. Yeah, I guess I'll say the one thing that I uh, that this kind of panel has brought up for me, and, and as we were preparing our paper, I was thinking about how much resistance both the bibliographies we have and the books themselves are to the kind of recovery work that we want to do. And I was thinking, like, what is it about the book that seems so, the book itself, that seems so author-centric? I mean, if you think about other media, like film, you know, you would have filmed this these days, the last 15 minutes are credits, right? So why is it that, other than a few players, um, the title page does not recognize a lot of that other labor. It's just it's just an interesting invention that really, in our period in particular, uh, you know, for some of the reasons that Chad's talking about too, it's not like it's just the author becomes so central to the to the physical book itself that it's hard to reconstruct. And if sorry, yeah, um, and if I can just. Point out the obvious, and I think what's so interesting about being on this panel is that we're here under the auspices of you know questioning the category of author, but none of us is really interested in that as an end, right? Like we are questioning the category in order to answer and get at other questions. So yours may be a, a recovery project, um, I, I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but or mouths, sorry, because they're collaborative. Um, uh, uh, but. But we're here, we're using that to do something else, to do some other kind of labor, and yeah. Uh, a point that you brought up about the distinct roles of, say, poet versus playwright versus theologian uh, makes me think of sort of the end of the 19th century when you have a lot of writers dabbling at least in all of those various um, uh, genres, so to speak. So I wonder if that's sort of an interesting moment um, in terms of our, our, our ideas around conventional authorship and, and, uh, and how we envision it. But actually, sorry, that was just, that, that was just me kind of <laughs> thinking out loud. But I actually have a question for you, Molly. Um, so nowadays, we do have a Murakami, right? So um, I'm wondering if you have any sense of when there was a shift in Japan towards this idea of sort of a celebrity kind of author. Turn of um, the 20th century. What's that? The turn of the 20th century. Okay. It's like <coughs> the period maybe 10 years after what I'm talking about uh, here today. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, especially if you've heard of Natsume Soseki, he was on the money in Japan. He may <coughs> still be um, on the $10 bill. He is the most famous um, modern as opposed to contemporary author. And he started having his photograph published in various like newspapers and magazines when they <coughs> published his stories or wrote about him. Like he, uh, my colleague who graduated from Michigan with me, Brian Dowdle, wrote a chapter on this in his dissertation of um, Soseki going from kind of your traditional Japanese gentleman to a Western style gentleman wearing a suit, being surrounded by Western books in his study. So there's a lot of like iconography That's going along with the celebrity authorship that was developing that. Okay. And did it, just, did it just, was it like a quick transition or did it? It was pretty fast. Uh -huh. Yeah. I, w I mean, I would say between, you know, if you look at like 1889 uh -huh. versus like 1909, yeah. it looks very different. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Carolyn, how are we doing on time? We've got about 10 minutes. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, this is, well, it's a question for both questions. Yeah, I'm not sure
writing in the five portraits you're, of Chaucer you were showing. And I get that you know, showing <coughs> a secular author, maybe even one who it says swive periodically, uh, is not something that align with the evangelists. Um, but I was left, uh, as I'm, I was left whenever Richard Williams comes up, uh, with you know, wanting to like, follow that question, wanting to think about, who, okay, they're not evangelists, but who is, the, who are the who's that are being shown? And I, and I noticed that you're all pointing in fact, the title of my chapter is Chaucer's Manicule. What is an author? An author is a guy who points. Or an author is a guy who points at books. Right. And I'm wondering if there actually is a kind of a force to that, if there if those uh, images are setting up a certain relation between persons and objects that we should take uh, seriously as an alternate way of thinking about these beings rather than as you know, writers. Absolutely, and so just to put the whole argument in a nutshell, I think that uh, illuminators were looking for ways to authorize Chaucer without aligning him with auctoritas or with the figure of the auctor. And so they, they um, equip him with the one thing that is a form of authorization um, that, uh, <coughs> that isn't attached to authors, it's attached to readers. So Chaucer, much like your uh, reviewers, becomes his own reader authorizing his own text, or in the case of the weird image I showed you, a raindrop, um, whatever that image was originally meant to be. And so it's conscripting with a kind of proleptic force the thrust of the manicule going, check this out. But he's doing it for himself. Did I answer your question? Yes. OK, cool. Did you I have a, a follow-up question. Exactly, yeah. I love it. <laughs> I have a slightly follow-up question, though, because, of course, when I think of images of authors from this period, it's the presentation miniature, right? It's the author giving a copy of the book, which is the book that you are yourself reading, this mise en image, to the patron who has commissioned the book, and these are so radically refusing that gesture, and so I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. That's my Lydgate chapter. Okay. <laughs> um, and and um, none of them is is an actual dedication portrait, uh, or, or excuse me, a donor portrait. They all have him on both knees performing an act of self-donation, like an ex-voto. Um, and we can chat about that afterwards. But yeah, they, Chaucer has no patron. Mm -hmm. yeah, of course. Yeah, um, uh, I want to ask a question. Um, so, so Zach, I, I, like, I like the phrase that the biography is perversive of authorship. Um, uh, I also find my own research that enumerative bibliographies on particular authors are really helpful. You know, <laughs> often ones that are published 100 years ago that are thinking of important work. Um, so I'm, 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 this question is, may not be well formed, but I'm, I'm thinking um, to Graves' evidence that you showed us and the kind of traditional evidence of analytical bibliography, mm -hmm. like a watermark or a countermark or, um, or printer's ornament. And I don't really know how to phrase it how to phrase this other than, other than to say, are we sneaking in an idea of authorship when we place too much value on those signs, right? And so the way of saying this is that, I mean, I, I've, in my own work, I've been thinking about, um, I, like, I, I really want to know, who, you know, is this this printer's ornament or this, this paper maker's mm. mark, right? And this, so that seems to contradict the idea of 
that Doug Jones proposed the partnership. I mean, it still relies on a certain kind of signature, mm -hmm. sneak in kind of authorship. Um, there are certain curious. Uh, right. Uh, I guess it depends what you mean by authorship. I, I think what I what I meant to say, but it's uh, I think bibliography, uh, and I think uh, I've read in the past three or four years started teaching analytic bibliography. But I used to really teach more like book history. Uh, and I really noticed that when teaching it to students, I think bibliography is resistant to or corrosive of ideology. I think in an authorships of particular ideology. And once and, and the kind of both close looking and distant looking and all of the kinds of um, tools and techniques and habits of mind that bibliography brings to bear uh, tends to reveal the working of that ideology. It doesn't mean that then it can't be put to use. I mean look. Greg and, and Pollard and them, that what they found when they started looking closely at early modern texts was all of the other labor that went into producing them. They knew it. It's not like they weren't aware of all that. They needed that other labor. They needed to identify compositors and scribes and, and all of these people. Uh, they put So that's what they found, which is kind of corrosive of the ideology of singular author. Now, they put it to use to reconstitute it, uh, a singular author. Right, by trying to strip those all away and, and somehow to arrive at a singular author, which is what I think they do with the paper papers as well. So it's not that it inevitably you know, will do this, but I, but I think practice right will. Now, I, I agree with you that um, bibliography, the analytic bibliography, um, absolutely depends on notions of intentionality. Right, and there's no getting around that. Uh, the difference between um, something that was meant to happen in the print shop and something that was not meant to happen in the print shop is, is often the key to unlocking the way print shops worked, right? Um, if something goes right the way it's intended to go, we don't learn very much about. So absolutely, intentionality is needed. Ascription, I think, is absolutely central to the bibliography. So whose paper, where was this paper, in whose shop, whose type was this? Ascription and attribution is, is fundamental to to, the, to kind of figuring out how books came to be the way they are, as Michael Suarez says. Um, and that's totally fun, foundational, I agree, to bibliography. I don't think that that's equivalent to authorship. I think that, you know, it's about attributing, well, attribution of uh, work to the person who did it is critical. I think in a way that's opposed to authorship. Uh, I just wanted to throw out, since we're kind of coming to the end of this, that I am really looking forward to the conversation we have in three months after the Multigraph Collective's work. Uh, and I think some authors are in the room, but they don't identify themselves in any way, shape, or form. Um, interacting with print, which is entirely collaboratively written by, what, 21 humans? Um, and what that contributes both in terms of the knowledge that's produced within the work as well as the notion of authorship that's being kind of constructed or deconstructed or blown up uh, within, from inside the house. Um, it comes out in December, which is why I say I look forward to seeing what everyone thinks in 2018. Um, so the first thing that will happen is someone will use stylometric. <laughs> 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 Like you said, they wanted to have a group author no. title page. We didn't uh, say we it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Ye
Paragraphs that I wrote, but in completely different chapters, and then like it, it was alienating. But yes, you will find something like that. But it it it, it really was arresting um, and very not always comforting. I don't know, but it was really cool. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have this experience sometimes when I get proof back from the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe it's not just my collaboration. This is called writing. I'll say Caroline like that. that Fake news is already circulating about it as a good sign for the success of the <laughs> Matt, did you have a question? Maybe we could have one more question. We're running out of time, but it's sort of for you, Matt. I was curious about your um, discussion of the spiritual at the moment or for, for fatigue or for, for institutional life. And wondered, it's a little bit in tension with the point that Zachary's making, which I really agree with, that book history and bibliography sort of do this unstiffening project of all of these rigid categories, whether it's authorship, reading, publishing. You know, you get empirical book on the ground and stuff. I think John's example is also just enumerated bibliography as a kind of unstiffing tool. So <coughs> spirituality is like very stiff, <laughs> or you know, potentially a kind of reification. So could you say more about you know what what you're getting at? I think it functions. It can it functions the same way um, that um, that any that any analytical operation can, you know, that, in other words, yeah, you know, when you subject yourself to a certain kind of um, mechanical procedure designed to reduce a chaotic field to some kind of order, I'm trying to cleave the space between a number of these <laughs> papers, um, you, you may have, in the learning of it, a tool for breaking down um, for breaking down received order, uh, something that came before. Um, but uh, you know, Zach saying when you when you then move uh, that operation into a larger field of institutional practice or within a structure um, that's capable of co-opting it for other ends, then you may not necessarily have in the aggregate that operation. So in a way, what I'm looking for is less the messianic version of bibliography than the prophetic version. I want the dry bones and the wheels within <coughs> wheels and the eyes in the wheels. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, that that because that that is a a uh, giving a spirit and life to a community, right? This is a metaphorization of of, of a spiritualism that would reside normally in a religious organization. Right, um, and in certain ways, to be conscious of the ways in which um, ecclesiastical architectures can sneak in to our enterprises and be conscious of it, not simply to reject. I mean, I think this is you know one of the great things 
this panel has done is to diversify different notions and put them into tension, not just to sort of resist one mon one kind of monolithic notion. Um, so, but there I also mean that same operation that you're asked to do in trying to sort of think about what your motivation is for something, mm. you know, um, and to work that into the articulation of what you have found. We have new evangelical language. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I want to make one comment on that, and it's a completely personal comment, and it's about the fact that um, being part of the RBS program for a number of years as a fellow of this program, my husband now calls it the cult. And he calls it the cult because it has created and does create a really powerful community of people with like-minded goals and emphases. And, and that this is a, it is transformative in terms of your scholarship and in terms of also, I think, for many of us, like our professional networks and like what we aim to do with our work, how much collaboration and interdisciplinarity matters to us. So on and so forth. So I think it's totally awesome. He doesn't think it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but just to add, the cultish nature of the enterprise, of the, the yeah. sponsoring organization is quite. I think it's quite in line with what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I want. I want us to get to a place where he thinks it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pull it out the assumption. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thank you.